Into That World Inverted, a podcast, a pilgrimage, a queer road trip. Two friends set off in search of places that have meant so much to LGBTQ lives past and present. In this episode, which focuses on rural queer spaces, we alight for the coast and the eerie shingle desert of Dungeness, where a one-of-a-kind artist and activist made his home, with a little help from his friends. What are you up to? Uh, I am making a scale model. No way! Look at that! <laughs> a scale model of Prospect Cottage. Where did you find that? Well, um, <clears throat> uh, if you'll believe it, uh, it, it was advertised to me on Instagram. They know. Yeah, they know. They absolutely they know. know. Because, I mean, obviously I'm really f- interested in, in queer spaces, in historic queer spaces. Mm. And so obviously, confluence of my interest in queer spaces and scale modeling, uh, Instagram was like, he will love a tiny model of Prospect Cottage that he can make Yeah. in, in this kitchen. It's so uh, cool. Yeah, it's really great. It makes me feel like a god, you know. I'm yeah, we're both sort of looking over it. Yeah. <laughs> Bird's yeah. eye view. I mean, and, and certainly this is hardly the view that Derek Jarman had. No. Um, you know, uh, Jarman was a filmmaker and a painter and, you know, probably the best known AIDS activist, mm. most vocal and certainly the most visible AIDS activist in, in Britain for a time in the 1990s. Um, and he, scouted, he was scouting locations for one of his films, went to Dungeness, which is this weird flat shingle landscape on the coast of Kent near Folkestone and um, saw this fisherman's cottage, this small shed really on, 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 on the shingle and said, that's the place for me. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, turned it into this, this, uh, this amazing refuge, uh, I mean, a shrine, it became something of a shrine even before he he died in February 1994 of complications resulting from AIDS. And it just kind of, it was this kind of generator for for so much work and so much art and, um, and, and community as well. Like there was a lot of people that moved through the space, even though it was, it was also a place of solitude away from, you know, his flat in London. Mm. Um, but the garden is obviously the garden is obviously as important as as the house itself. I, mean, I don't I, have a model garden. No, but you have a, much of the garden in your flower crown. I do. I mean, yeah, I was going to say the garden for me is the real draw to um, to Derek Jarman's um, cottage. Uh, the fact that he created such an innovative. Um, garden on a on a shingle beach I mean it's you know it's incredible um when I was preparing for this road trip um I read Jarman's books and I read about the gardens and I wrote this really quite extensive list um listing everything he'd grown there I mean it's really impressive um and so for this crown I've chosen a very select few um of the plants he grew um i think i did want something quite simplistic so i've got some helichrysum some poppy heads because of course he grew the orange uh burning orange californian poppies in the garden and i've also got some dried lavender got lovely yeah burnt orange and yellows and pinks and purples Mm, with the helichrysum yeah they dry yeah dry beautifully 
um, there is something kind of, yeah, a little bit um, pagan, I think, about these flower crowns. I was thinking that, yeah. yeah. yeah, Some, yeah. I, and I think that's something that Jarman would really have appreciated. You know, he's got this... Uh, the circle of kind of standing stones that uh, mm. around Prospect Cottage, and you know, was really interested in 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 you know pagan Albion, you know, yes. England. Yeah, yeah. Um, you all ready? I am indeed. Ready to go? Yeah. Okay. Um, I'll see you in the camera then. On the way to Dungeness, we're going to meet the performance artist Jake Wood. So we're meeting uh, Jake Wood uh, next, um, who is a 21-year-old artist and a friend of mine who was born and raised in Gillingham. Um, he graduated from the University of the Creative Arts earlier this year. And um, he's done a load of residencies, most recently in Home, home Live Art. Um, anyway, but the thing that's really interesting about Jake is that he is really interested in space and in site-specific performances. Um, there's one in particular that I really love, um, where he <laughs> he sent he sent me this video of, of one of his performances where he got onto uh, a, a tube in London, one of the, one of the uh, like a tube carriage in London and started working out um, and then there's this other one called um, Jim I thought you said gin um, where he goes into like a gym into the weights room of a gym which is this incredibly you know kind of um, uh, this this space that has all these rules and all these codes of behavior and he wanders into the to the gym sits down um, pops a can of um, gin and tonic and pours himself a drink um, oh god these roads are very narrow hold on a second okay yeah um, anyway so he does a lot of the, that kind of um, subversive interpretation of space and 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 putting his body in there he uh, was a bodybuilder for a number of years his recent work is thinking about the intersections of bodybuilding and queerness um, and especially his latest work, um, which is called Muscle Mary. And he told us to meet him in Fairfields? Yeah, in Fairfields, yeah. Um, and we're just coming up now. Not quite sure where he, where he might be, actually. Um, did, I mean, there's not much kind of phone signal out this direction. Um, Wait, can you see that over there? Are you seeing what I'm seeing? <laughs> yeah, that's him. That's him. I thought it was a scarecrow. It's a bodybuilder in a field. It's gorgeous. <laughs> hey, look, there's a lay-by. Let's park in there. There he is, over there. In the marshes. In the marshes. On his own. 
on the other side of this river that's flowing through the marshes. And it's just this incredibly flat landscape around mm. us. And it's this, so he's doing, now he's doing push-ups. And previously he was like doing this, like flexing his muscles. And can I just add, he's doing an impressive amount of push-ups in quick succession. I can do that many push-ups. All right. <laughs> okay, I couldn't do that many push-ups, so. <laughs> But, and he's and he's almost entirely naked apart from this fleece costume that that kind of hangs off his body in these really interesting ways and shows off his 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 shoulders and his muscles and his arms come on let's 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 go a little bit closer I mean because the spectator I mean who is like I you know he who is meant to be the spectator yeah who's the spectator? It's, uh, you know, apart from the sheep, the sheep and, and us, you know, it's completely deserted around here. So, I mean, there's, so, there's a sense almost like that he's communing with something bigger than himself, you know, with nature, with God. I think of Claude Cahun, the photographer and, and, and the performance artist. Now she used to, you know, go into the sands of Jersey and just commune with that and, and capture it on film. Hello, Jake. We found you. <laughs> Hi. You look amazing. Found me. Thank you. Your costume is amazing. Can oh, you, can thank you. Can you talk us through what, what it, you know, where it seems like a patchwork of wool? Yes, this is all from Romney Marsh wool from shepherdesses and farmers here um, mm -hmm. that I've sort of kind of taken inspiration from to make into wearable costumes. And different species presumably? Yes, sheep. some of it's sheep, some of it's from black sheep wool. Um, yeah, and it's sort of kind of been using a peg loom, sort of using traditional kind of weaving techniques. Um, so it's all been done by myself. And also this has been dyed as well using berries. So this is like a whole kind of fleece has been just literally just sheared off a sheep. Like the cape, so the cape, cape element yeah. has been dyed by, yeah. yeah. So it's all natural fibres, all natural elements that you've taken from Romney Marsh. Yes, yes, definitely. And, what, and what's the idea behind this costume? Is, is, are you riffing on, you know, are you riffing on bodybuilding? Are you riffing on, like, super Superman? Yeah, yeah, no. I've had an experience. I used to compete in bodybuilding myself. Um, I got into bodybuilding, actually. I actually don't talk about this much. I had anorexia when I was younger, mm. so I was very, very ill. Very, very slim. Um, I went through massive amounts of therapy, but sort of didn't really help at all. And I sort of just found the gym really as kind of like a coping mechanism of therapy, um, of somewhere I could escape. Um, and then I sort of got to a certain level of fitness where I thought, okay, I want to take this further into sort of a focus, like an end goal. Mm. Um, and I got into bodybuilding and I competed back in 2019 in Margate at a bodybuilding competition called Pure Elite. Um, I didn't win, but the whole process was very important to me and the journey I took on from that. Um, and then starting to think about, you know, I'm an artist, starting to think about where I could take this into sort of an art form um, to develop my practice. Because um, I had a performance practice anyway, working with sculpture, um, sort of performing in public spaces, sort of interventions. Um, but I think the bodybuilding element really sort of kind of helped took it to another level of ridiculous and humour and kind of sort of interfering with uh, people's spaces really. I mean, there's a really beautiful quote actually um, that is uh, described from Bruce Nauman's work by artist and writer Dan Graham 
um, in a text called Subject Matter in 1993. He sort of describes, Bruce Nelman's one of my first favourite performance artists I take a lot of inspiration from. So he talks about Nelman being both artist and material. And I think that's just both really lovely in terms of sculpture, physicality, mm. the body, the body as the material, the body as the forefront of the work with props and sculpture. And there's so. a real kind of materiality of the um, yes. of your um, outfit, which um, connects you to to your landscape. Um, yeah. The fact that you've foraged some of these, you know, when sheep go past the bushes and they leave um, yeah. some of their some of their wool behind. Um, it's yeah, it strikes me yeah, as I work, so connected. Yeah, I work a lot with farm materials myself. I sort of kind of feel like where the, that's where the sort of the queerness comes from. So I make a lot of stuff through, you know, just general race, really, to make it functional, questioning the audience's view on sort of functionality, especially in a live sort of situation. Um, so yeah, the, these wall pieces can also be displayed on, you know, as, as wall pieces in their own right. And then they can sort of, I like the idea of, you know, taking it off the gallery wall as a performance. They can sort of be very, um, they're very durable and very sort of, you know, multifunctional and how they can sort of be used. I just love the idea of, you know, taking it in a backpack someone and transferring it into, you know, this whole kind of performance muscle Mary. Are you are you cold, by the way? No, I'm all right. All right. I'm all good. <laughs> yeah. Now I've started performing it in the to... space, it's, yeah. it's, uh, it's all good. Because, yeah, I'm just looking around. So, um, you know, this is, yeah, the, the this is the marsh. You know, you've got a couple of cows over there. Um, sheep. There's yeah. sheep right over there. I mean, and this is this is now your your new space, whereas previously would have been the gym, yeah. which is this incredibly kind of uh, ordered, structured, human-made kind of space. Yeah. What 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 drew you to to, do, to performing out here? You know, well, when I left university, I did an internship with an art festival called Art in Romney Marsh. They're sort of based around here. They do visual art festivals. Um, they show works like Derek Jarman, for example, and. James Capper, people like that, and they also show emerging artists as well. Um, but sort of doing an internship with them, um, sort of in charge of the publicity and the promotion for the festival, I sort of was really drawn to the landscape. Obviously it has a lot of queer heritage, Derek Jarman, Edward Burrow, Henry James. Um, so in a way I kind of wanted this also to be a response to their queer afterwardness that they left behind. Um, and I just thought, you know, there needs to be some sort of intervention, like intervention in, in this landscape to use this like a theatre or like a, a stage to perform in. Um, and sort of kind of the sheep and, and, and the cows, they become sort of, you know, like the participants, I'm willing, the participants in the work, they become like the co-creators, if you like, that kind of shape the, the, uh, mm. the format and the boundaries of the work. I mean, yeah, you know, as you said, like there's such a rich tradition of queer people in in Kent and Sussex, as we're seeing. Um, and we're actually heading out to Jarman's Prospect Cottage in a moment. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, has has somebody like Jarman been been important for you as yeah. a, as a, as a queer artist, as somebody who's interested in nature and 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 the body and yeah, especially his um, his films in particular, and also his. Uh his, you know, his relationship to queer ecology, especially with his garden. I mean, I was in a show to do with queer ecology and the landscape, and I think Derek John was a really good example of that, the queer ecology. And, um, you know, such an inspiration for a young artist like myself. Um, definitely, I'm quite good friends with his carer, his former carer, actually, Peter Fillingham. He still keeps loads of Derek's sketchbooks, and he's just finished doing the um, the poem on the, on, the, mm. on the cottage, which is really mm. beautiful. very bleak drizzly day well yeah I mean I suppose almost immediately you get that sense of um, <laughs> you get that sense of a, of a 
of a, of a paradoxical kind of landscape, right? Where um, you've got the insistence of this desert shingle landscape and also um, a hyper-technologized um, geometric spaces of, of, the, of the nuclear power station. Um, There's an eclectic range of buildings. You've got a building that looks like it's been tiled, as in bathroom tiles. Um, <laughs> as in public toilets tile. Lots of timbers. Um, yeah, like clapboard houses. Painted in lots of different colours. I think with the power station and the flatness of the land and the fact that most of the buildings are very low rise and the fact that the skyline is so empty, there is a bit of an apocalyptic feel. Um, um, well, at Prospect Cottage, we're going to meet uh, my friend Brooke Palmieri. Uh, Brooke is an artist and a writer and uh, a purveyor of queer books. The thing that's really interesting about Brooke is that they use, you know, the the sale and the trading and the exchange of queer media like books and um, magazines and ephemera as as um, as an artistic endeavor, you know, as an artistic practice and, and as an activist practice as well. I, th I just thought that was really cool. Um, they run uh, an initiative called Camp Books. Uh, wait a second, hold on. Am I going the right way here? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, all right, okay. Um, maybe I'll just have to turn around here. Hold on a second. Okay. Yeah, I asked, um, I asked Brooke to meet us at Prospect Cottage um, because of um, they, their love for Derek Jarman. Um, I came across their essay, Situated Bliss, uh, in an anthology of, of writings responding to uh, Jarman's film, Blue. And it just kind of bowled me over, really, its connections between like personal history and um, artistic practice and English literature and the occult and, and all that stuff. So, yeah, I think we're going to have a good time. So, okay, we are approaching the front of Prospect Cottage with those really distinctive lemon yellow window and door frames. Do you know anything about these plants around about here? That's like sea kale, isn't it? Yes, yeah, that's, um, there's lots of sea kale and the bug loss. Um, and there's gorse as well, so that's all native to this landscape. Right. Um, and I think with this garden, I love... I love the origin story um, of him getting uh, some driftwood and using it as a stake and getting a bit of compost um, and then plonking the, it was a dog rose um, mm. that he first planted. And 
seeing what would happen. Um, he didn't know what was going to grow here, and I mean, the sort of the weather is brutal. Um, mm. It can, it would, the seawater would burn certain plants. Um, I think he recalled that silver plants did quite well here, um, but not all. So the plants could be whipped and lashed by the the wind and the rain and the salt water. I love these like stone circles. You know, there's a strange kind of pagan mm. occult kind of quality to these rock beds. Jarman um, was interested in ley lines and stone circles like the ones at Avesbury so right. you can really see that resonance here. Yeah, yeah. Um, Shall we go around to the yeah, back? Yeah, let's go around. Do you want to go around to the back? Yeah. And um, have a look at those, some of those plants you were telling me about in here. I do. I can see some alliums. I can see some sedums. What else have we got? Of the California or Californian poppies, um, there's the rose hip, the elderflower, mm. now through uh, to elderberry. There's something very surreal, I think, about the power station in relation to some of the other things that we can see and view, like the um, traditional lighthouse and the traditional fisherman huts. Um, and I think the surreal is something that Jarman really sought to bring into his own garden. So, for instance, when he successfully planted daffodils, the thing he said was, you know, they look surreal. They don't look like they belong to this landscape because, indeed, they didn't really natively. This feels to me like it connects with some of the ideas we were thinking about, you know, with Jake, this idea that mm. um, queerness has been figured um, uh, for for a long time as as being unnatural as being something on you know as being something that doesn't take place in nature and is therefore kind of subject to censure and um conversion right mm. um and it's this you know the planting of daffodils the planting of jarman himself in this kind of landscape um feels like it's making an intervention into that it is an intervention this garden is an intervention um but it was also, the garden was also a therapy. Um, mm. When Jarman planted that first dog rose, he said the garden has begun and that he saw it as a kind of therapy. Um, so it was this, the strangeness and surreal edge that this whole landscape had and this garden had. It was, it was soothing, it was solace. Um, so this landscape, which is hostile um, and vicious for some plants, um, he did thrive in it, as did his plants. Shall we knock on the door and see if anyone's inside? Yeah. Hello. Hi, welcome. Why don't you come on in? Have a cup of tea. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. I can't believe we get to visit inside Prospect Cottage. I've seen it so much, um, so many times from the outside <laughs> what can i make for you um, got let's see got chamomile got mint um i'll have, <laughs> I'll have a i'll have a mint yeah thanks yeah me as well anything helpful. yeah absolutely it's such an odd landscape um from the kitchen i mean yeah. In the foreground, we've got rosehip and elderflower. 
um, and the garden. And then we've got tourists um, traipsing through the shingle in Derek's garden. In matching blue outfits. Yes. <laughs> Beyond that, we've got a woman and her dog hanging out her washing on the line. The power station's very foreboding. And a miniature railway. It's just, it's odd. For all its natural wildness, there's an incredible amount of intention that Jarman put into his garden. And I think one of my favorite examples of that are these... I mean, there's driftwood all throughout the house itself, but there's also these large beams of driftwood that he gathered from the beach and stuck into the ground of his garden upright, almost like a henge, like Stonehenge or Seahenge. Or it gives the it, it gives the landscape this kind of quality of ancient human inhabitation. It's sort of like mimics the oldest art forms and the oldest traces of humanity that we can study on landscape, namely something like megaliths, like Stonehenge. So it also gives a sense that there have always been people here, no matter how forbidding it's been. I remember coming with my girlfriend at the time, I'm still my partner, but it was very much the time of like young love for us. So we were making out all over the place. <laughs> so like, you know what I mean? You know, against the lighthouse, against the 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 sea shacks that fishermen stay in. Um, we were picnicking on the shingle. Um, of course, we couldn't come in the house, but we could sort of circumambulate it like like true pilgrims. I've I've experienced the thrills of um, of, of early love uh, that still endures, of course. Um, so I very much associate the barrenness of the landscape with incredible promise and rushes of feelings mm. and fun. Um, we also checked out the pubs, which are really extreme places. You know, one of them claims to be built on the skeleton of a Spanish shipwreck. Whether or not that's true, it certainly seems that way from being inside. The other one, the Britannia, is sort of obsessed with surveillance and pointing out anything suspicious that you might see. Uh, I think kind of to protect the nuclear power plant, it's sort of seen as like a, an important, you know, <laughs> potentially very dangerous site, you know. And yeah, we had a great time. We stayed in Rye, but I haven't been back since. The idea that I could write something that would lead me to be sitting here with you in Derek Jarman's kitchen, where Derek Jarman's gardening outfit is hanging on a hook on the, on the door, um, surrounded by jars that he kept his pasta in <laughs> and his mm. oatmeal uh, is really incredibly overwhelming <laughs> but in a good way <laughs> if, you, if you were to take us back like you know obviously he he is enormously significant for you as a person and as an artist and as a writer um but what like when did that first when was your first encounter with him yeah i think i would have been about 18 or 19 at, uh, I'm from Philadelphia originally, so this would have been in Philly at the library at my university where uh, over spring break I we didn't go on vacation or anything like that. That was too expensive, so my spring break was always going to the library and just picking books off the shelf like by chance. I guess the technical name for that is bibliomancy. <laughs> so it was a little bit of bibliomancy, but I found Chroma and I just picked it because I liked the title sounded cool and it looked short enough to be read very quickly. Uh, but what I found in that as a student who was working in 
the English Renaissance, working in the early modern time period, really concerned with 17th, you know, 16th, 17th century mysticism, is that that's what Jarman was reading as well. And he was queer. And he was, and he was reading it not only through a queer lens, but he was also finding um, the friendships, the incredibly passionate collaborative friendships among the people who lived in that time. And he was, and he was bringing them to life in ways that I think had a lot of connection with the way I was experiencing friendship and pleasure and partying at the time. So mm -hmm. I always felt like, you know, I didn't have the language of queerness. I didn't see a gay person or a lesbian person or a trans person until I was maybe 18 or 19. But I always had this like pastiche of strange texts, um, like alchemical texts that talk about gender in really strange ways. Uh, magical, like things about witchcraft, which are always kind of gender nonconforming in their own way. Um, yeah, books about the Renaissance, you know, Marsilio Ficino talking about eating in the power of the sun by, you know, as you like eat sunflower petals. Um, and that was my queerness as a, as a kid even. So mm. finding someone who had a completely different upbringing, was from a completely different part of the world, and yet shared the, that like patchwork quilt of references that were 500 years before the word you know, heterosexual or homosexual ever came into existence. And yet the word queer is that old, um, you know, that finding mm -hmm. someone who had those affinities intellectually was really exciting to me mm -hmm. and started to give me a kind of language. Yeah. To come out. So I wasn't out yet. Really? So, right. So essential yeah. to your like, really is. Yeah. And then awakening. I saw, yeah. And then, you know, watching his films and kind of coming into it that way. And, as a as a exemplar, I think the idea that you could live a happy life by collaborating with your friends to make art, like that's that's the that's the pattern, you know, that's the example, mm. that's the dream. You want to I want to work with my friends and hang out with them forever. And that that's the, you know, mode of artistic production, love and friendship. And I think he reading through his journals, that's what they're all about. And be I mean being here as well, you get a real sense of that that collaboration you know the the walls are just full of artworks that his friends have created yeah. and his mentors have created and the one thing that really struck me was the were these um um pieces of furniture like his bed mm. and these kind of thrown like chairs these really like kind of chunky um wooden chairs that were created by by his friend andy you know so he's living amongst the 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 the, the yeah. products of friendship yeah and love, yeah you know the but it's a small house but it's filled with gifts from the sea and the shore and gifts from his friends mm. and even yeah it's that i think is why it's such a moving place to be in i think when I first came in here, I absolutely welled up with tears, um, <laughs> which technically is getting harder for me to do given the hormones I'm taking. <laughs> um, I actually haven't cried since I went on testosterone, so this has been a real breakthrough for me. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Derek. You know, as ever, uh, Derek he's, Jarman he's from Beyond the Grave uh, is giving, is mentoring me, uh, sort of ushering me through my life in very uh, enlightening ways. <laughs> Let's go. Let's go this way. So this is the this is his studio, I, I reckon, given the um, uh, enormous bench with a vice that's um, splattered with paint. Oh my goodness! Um, and all of his books, all the copies of his books are in here behind uh, uh, behind glass bookshelves. Bookshelves. You can also see some of the source material for his his journals for Modern Nature. For you can see. 
you know, modern herbal books about roses and wildflowers. And then there are, and then there are books about color schemes in flower gardens. Um, there's a book over here, A History of Colors. So, you know, this is the source material for Chroma that he was looking through while he was researching and, and writing it up. And then there's, of course, artist books, as far as the eye can see. You know, you see Jarman's overalls just on the workbench and it feels like he's just stepped out, you know? Yeah. And the, co the commitment to keep this space um, exactly as it was. You know, look at those tubes of paint. Dried They're paint. like dried out tubes of paint that have been there since he died. Um, yeah. Shall we take a, a look inside his, her, his, his monk's cell, his, his bedroom? His bedroom. I mean, I said monk's cell kind of jokingly, but there are, there's a crucifix and a painting of uh, Jesus on the cross. Drift, they're like large pieces of driftwood, almost like walking sticks or staffs that are just leaning against the corner. And on the ceilings, um, these this dark wood paneling, it's um, in this almost claustrophobic um, kind of dark brown it gives this real feeling of enclosure um, but also safety and protection mm. so we're in Derek Jarman's bedroom and we're looking at the last painting he ever made before he died this was in October 1993 and it's called One Day's Pills and the painting is composed I mean, is it a, is it a painting? Is it is a bit more of a it's an um, assemblage, I guess. Yeah, it is an assortment of around twelve uh, pill bottles. Um, there is a vial and a syringe, and then there's also the packaging um, of the pills he was taking. It's I mean, it the the kind of exhaustion of. Uh, of creativity in in the in the work is really palpable you know it's like it's just an arrangement of one's life when you're that ill you know there's it's 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 a it's a testament to the kind of um daily upkeep of the self that doesn't leave much room for artistic inspiration i i would say i I definitely agree. It's very matter of fact. Um, it is what it is. And um, its meaning is incredibly clear um, to the viewer. Yeah, I mean, I think it's something that really combines the fact that he was an artist who was also forced to become an activist and to filter his art through his, his activism through his artistic practice. So Derek Jarman was involved in outrage. Uh, which was a activist group around um, helping people with AIDS, providing awareness around people with AIDS. He was in the streets protesting. He was one of the first high-profile people to be uh, to to go public with his AIDS diagnosis, which put him in incredible an incredible amount of harm's way um, at a time when the AIDS crisis increased the amount of violence against queer people, no matter their um, diagnosis. So yeah, to me, the idea that we would move from a sort of loose assemblage of magical salvaged objects um, in a circular kind of, in, you know, the, the, in, in, the, in his workroom, they're circular. Um, they've got this kind of um, a little bit more of a non-symmetrical 
almost intuitive placement. It's an openness to them, isn't it? Yeah, and an expansiveness Mm. to the way they relate to one another, the way you might read the symbolism of them, whereas the symmetry and the starkness of this assemblage, it it feels much more direct and concise in its meaning, which is just like, look what I have been reduced to in a world that does not care for sick people, in a world where healthcare for all is not at all a possibility um, when some when when day-to-day life is a fight um, but then it also I mean the other side I guess the one other thing I would say about this is you know this this was a life that he that he lived for years he had an incredible amount of I guess love of life the love for the life that he lived such that he never gave up never gave up you know he, he every cure that was put his way every doctor's appointment he was scheduled for I mean he painstakingly describes his trips his routine trips to the hospital which only increased toward the end of his journals smiling in slow motion is the last uh, volume of his journals and it's every day he's going up to the going to the hospital um, but he doesn't give up because he loves his partner he loves his friends he's got creative projects that he's working on um, so <laughs> It's also a very brutal testimony to to that desire to be alive. You know, I believe very deeply that a kind of extension of the notion of chosen family that's so important to LGBTQIA people, for me, is the idea of um, like chosen forebears, chosen ancestors, um, people who have lived and died in ways that we have affinities with and want to carry forward or feel moved by. And Derek Jarman has always been one of those. You know, if I want to think about the kind of person that I'm an heir to, you know, what's my inheritance as someone who will not inherit anything? Um, I think about the example of like queer people of the past whose work I've loved and he's one of those people. So that is something that over the course of my life has only become more the case as Jarman's influence has sort of come up in my life, as I've discovered more about him, as, as, I've, as I've been able to travel to the places where he's been. Um, you know, when I first discovered that book, I was in Philadelphia and I had no idea that four years later I'd be moving to the UK and not only moving to the UK, but living near Butler's Wharf where he lived and made a lot of his artwork, uh, well, you know, like walking my dog right by where he was, uh, having coffee and croissants at the cafe where he used to gossip with his friends, um, living in an apartment building called Prospect House. You know, it's like these references to German have accrued over the years and it's made me only feel more sort of potently connected to him. And then last year, Richard Porter, who runs Pilot Press, put out a call for artistic responses to Jarman's movie Blue. And that's where this little piece of writing I'm about to read comes from. Sort of my response or my shared uh, entwined experiences autobiographically with the color blue, um, which for Jarman came to mean something really different when he was writing about it in Chroma. So I'll read a little excerpt of that now. 
On the cover of a blueprint for bliss, a square fragment of glass was mounted and engraved by Jarman, reading Bliss. I think of John Donne in a valediction of my name in the window. Quote, my name engraved herein doth contribute my firmness to this glass, which ever since that charm hath been as hard as that which graved it was. In sophomore year, March 2007, I wrote, The peculiarities of a windowpane, glass, rank, and John Donne's love poetry in early modern England. I wrote that scarcity increased value, and in the 16th century England, glass was a rarity. John Donne couldn't afford the pane of glass he was vandalizing, and that somehow mattered to me. But what strikes me most now about this poem is the intense magic of John Donne's engraving. It's a love spell. He writes, Till my return repair and recompact my scattered body so, as all the virtuous powers which are fixed in the stars are said to flow into such characters as graved be when these stars have supremacy. His scattered body, it has power, maybe more power than it does when he's there. Until Don returns to his lover's bedroom, where he has scratched that name, the characters of his name draw down the heavens, very hermetic, but also creepy, like the lyrics to You Ought to Know by Alanis Morissette. Every time I scratch my nails down someone else's back, I hope you feel it. Different surface, same vibe, scratching as a type of channeling energy into a surface, then releasing it. In other stanzas, the engraved name has the ability to summon Don's reflection, never be erased, make Don's lover mourn his absence daily, and overshadow the name of anyone else his lover may try to write letters to or bring to bed. I imagine these occult powers of reflection, refraction, restriction, revision, as embedded in Jarman's own engraving of bliss, too. He knew is done. The sun rising is mounted on the side of Prospect Cottage. I imagine these occult powers of reflection, refraction, restriction, revision as crucial to any queer optics if they are to be grounded in practice, ground into the lenses we make all our lives with our own bodies and the experiences that shape us. I engrave the word queer optics into glass and imagine a queer optics that blots out a lot of queer theory, generating ways of seeing the world with an understanding of where we're standing and where other people are standing but also experimenting with distances and angles to play with the possibilities of light and color. Of course, the problem with advocating for a theory that comes from practice, like most recently Sarah Schulman does in Let the Record Show, is that everything has been so hyper-theorized, it's hard to know where to begin. Following blue, beginning with visions, bold colors, shapes, some of the earliest things humans developed to grapple with the world, and contemplating their partiality or loss, feels like as good a place as any. For what are you seeking? The fathomless blue of bliss. In 2014, Jarman's friend Donald Smith curated a show called Almost Bliss, notes on Derek Jarman's blue at Chelsea Space. And there the notebook was on display to see your reflection in, to scry with, to capture the power of the stars, to force you into mourning that he was dead. The title page in Jarman's beautiful handwriting over a painted field of ultramarine blue. A challenge to get to the fathomless bliss of blue. In the next episode, 
we spend our final day in Hastings and St. Leonard's, where we chat with Hastings' queer history collective, the writer Jeremy Atherton Lynn, and artist and organiser Peter Fillingham, who also asks us to perform at his art show. Into That World Inverted was presented by Dermot Hester and Holly James Johnston and produced by David Bramwell. With thanks to our funders, the University of Cambridge, and our partners, the National Trust and Creative Folkestone. Thanks also to all the writers, artists, curators, and community groups who gave up their time to talk to us. Into That World Inverted is a Prick Up Your Ears podcast. For more immersive audio journeys, visit prickupyourears.net. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please complete the short survey on the website.